I'm sure your Christmas day was a little bit different than most years. If you were like our family, we spent a lot of it on the computer talking to family rather than having them come and visit us. And so we are having Christmas in a pandemic. I have a couple of jokes that I hope we only tell one time, and that's in this Christmas. And we can throw them away because they're not going to be any good when we're not in a pandemic. And uh, so here's the first one. Why couldn't Mary and Joseph join their work conference call? Because there was no Zoom in the end. All right, I said they were jokes. I didn't say they were good jokes. Okay, I just said they were jokes. So because they're not that good, let me just give you one more so I don't torture you this morning with my bad dad jokes. Did you hear that production was stopped at Santa's workshop? Many of his workers have had to elf-isolate. And that one's even worse. I even heard some groans from the kids from that one. All right, so we'll stop with with the pandemic Christmas jokes. But talking about uh, some humor, uh, there is a... I want to go back to the movie Forrest Gump for a minute. And there's just one moment in there I want to share with you because it does make sense with the scripture we're looking at this morning. It actually is at Christmas time. And it's uh, Lieutenant Dan, and he is struggling with the fact that he has no legs, yet when he goes to the VA... All of these chaplains are telling him to find Jesus. They tell him, if you find Jesus, your life will be better. And even when you uh, go to heaven, you'll be able to walk on the streets of gold. And so that just irritates him because he can't walk on earth. Why would he want to walk in heaven? He is just mad and angry at God and angry at the VA chaplains and angry at Forrest. And so he asks him, have you found Jesus yet, Gump? And Forrest says, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, sir. And if you know Forrest Gump, you know that's exactly how he should have answered. Is how He didn't know he was looking for him. It's almost as though God is lost and Forrest has to go find him. And he didn't know he was supposed to go find Jesus. When we come to uh, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2, in a story you're very familiar with about the wise men, they are looking for Jesus. And so that's where we'll be this morning, Matthew chapter 2. Before we read that, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful this morning that you can be found. We are thankful, Lord, that you do not hide from us, that you want us to be close to you, and that if we seek you, we will find you. I pray that you would Teach us this morning how to seek you and follow you and be close to you every day of our life. Not just in a moment of our life, not just in several moments, but every moment of our life. Bless our time, Lord, in your word and teach us this morning and we pray in your name. Amen. Matthew chapter 2, the wise men seeking Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them, where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, 
Because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. The wise men, we tell their story every Christmas. And as I share with you every Christmas, and I think you probably all got it figured out by now, they didn't come to the stable, didn't see Jesus laying in the manger. They saw him later when he was a toddler at his house. But there's a lot that we don't know about the wise men. We don't know how many of them there were. There were three gifts. If they were truly wise, I guess each one would have brought a gift. But you know those friends of yours, right, that want to do a group gift and they like to show up at a party or birthday party and not bring their own gifts. So maybe, you know, I made it a little bit silly, but maybe there were four or five or a whole group of them and they brought three gifts. Uh, we don't really know why they associated the star that they saw with the birth of a Jewish king. Uh, these men were uh, magi or astrologers. And so their job was to look at the stars and to read them, to try to see how the planets and the stars work together, to try to see the future, to try to figure out prophecies. But why when they saw a star, they thought, oh, that means a Jewish king has been born. Let's go follow it. I mean, why would they have done that? Even if you read the Old Testament, it's hard to find any verses that talk about a star signifying the birth of a king or the birth of a Messiah. So I guess most likely what happened, God told them when they saw this star what its significance was. But we have to speculate because we don't know why they saw the star and thought it was going to lead them to Jesus. We don't know the nature of the star, what it was. Some people try to look back into history and to find a supernova or try to find a, two uh, stars aligned or planets aligned to say this is what they saw. But as I read this morning, didn't you notice how the star moved to the actual house where Jesus was? I don't know of any planets or stars or anything in the sky that's going to move to a certain place. It was almost like a divine GPS. And I think that's sort of what it was. This star, they saw it. They knew it was going to lead them to uh, Jesus or to the king of the Jews. It led them to Bethlehem. And that's why they asked King Herod about it. But then the star moved. It went, it went down the street, around the corner, to the house. Maybe the star was God himself in some way. 
Remember in the Old Testament how God's glory, His Shekinah glory, led the Israelites in the desert. They would follow the fire at night and the cloud by day. It was God Himself leading them. So again, I'm speculating. These are things we don't know about the star, the wise men, why they chose that star to follow. We don't know where they came from, although, of course, we know they came from the east, but the east covers a lot of territory, doesn't it? Were they east of Bethlehem, a few miles or a few hundred miles? Uh, because we do know that they were uh, magi or wise men, they probably came from the area of Babylon. So that's probably where they came from, but we don't know for sure. If they did, they traveled about 900 miles to see Jesus. And we don't know the significance of their gifts. Why did they give Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh? We don't know why. Maybe these gifts had meaning, but the Bible doesn't tell us. Some have speculated the gold referred to God, uh, to Jesus as God and his divinity, and that the frankincense is a perfume, uh, was the fragrance of his life, and the myrrh, which was used as a burial spice, signified the fact that he would die and be buried. That all sounds nice, but it's not there in the Bible. So I don't know if that's true or not. It could be more simple. The fact that here were uh, kings in a sense. So that's what we call them. But uh, magi, wealthy, the, the Gentiles. The Old Testament does talk about the wealth of the nations coming to the Messiah. And maybe this is what it is. Or even simpler than that, maybe they were wealthy and they brought nice gifts. <laughs> Most wealthy people do. Now, there's some cheapskates that have lots of money and give cheap gifts, but most people who can afford nice gifts bring nice gifts. And they were coming to see a king, and they should bring gifts worthy of a king. And so they brought these gifts, and maybe that's the only thing about them. They were expensive and worthy of a king. We don't know the meaning, the significance of these gifts. But that doesn't matter that we don't know these things. <laughs> what does matter is what we do know. As I said, we do know they were magi, they were astrologers. We do know that they were Gentiles. And this is very significant. You see, the, the Jews, when they heard the prophecies of the Messiah, they would read those with a, a nation in mind, their nation in mind. Uh, they would see how for centuries they would have moments of peace, but most of their history was one where they were oppressed by enemies. And they longed for a leader, a ruler, who would bring peace, who would destroy their enemies, who would bring prosperity, who would set up a kingdom that would last forever and they would no longer have to be oppressed by all these foreigners and enemies. And so when they heard Messiah, that's what they primarily had in their mind, a, a, a king, a ruler for them and them alone. If they had read carefully, they would have noticed even in the prophecies that it was told that this was not going to be a leader just for Jews, but for everyone. And the fact that these Gentile wise men come and worship Jesus signifies this truth, that Jesus the Messiah is the Messiah, the Savior of the world for all sinners, not just Jewish people. That is significant. It's also significant that they worshiped Jesus and that they sought and found him. I want to contrast them with another group that's in this story as well. The religious leaders, the scribes. Uh, the scribes 
knew the scripture. They knew where the Messiah would be born. When Herod asked them, they gave the answer right away. They, they knew it. They knew it would be Bethlehem. They were eight miles that they lived in Jerusalem from Bethlehem. If they lived outside of Bethlehem, some of them might have been in closer. Some of them might have lived in Bethlehem. This is, again, months, maybe as much as two years after the shepherds saw Jesus and told what they saw. So I want you to think about this. Here are men who know that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. They must have heard stories of some shepherds who said they saw the Savior in Bethlehem. Yet they had not even bothered to walk eight miles to check it out for themselves. They did not seek the Messiah. They did not care to find Jesus. And so they didn't. Contrast that with these wise men who saw a star and in some way knew that this was going to lead them to the king of the Jews. And they traveled almost a thousand miles to see him. There shows a desire to seek. And because they did seek, they found him. You think it's hard to travel today. Can you imagine traveling almost a thousand miles back then with, with animals and over dry lands and uh, for months it would have taken to go that far? You know, just think about how they were able to, had to plan out the food they needed and, and all of the stuff. I mean, they had to worry about bandits or carrying gold, for goodness sake. You know, who's going to steal that from them? So just again, you can imagine how difficult this journey is. But they were willing to take it because they were seeking and looking for the king and they found him. And it's true today that everyone has the same choice. You can be a person who seeks and finds the Lord or you can be a person who could care less, even if you know facts about Jesus as they did. You can know facts, you can know things, but you have no desire to find God and you will not find him, even though he's close to you. So in our modern day Christmas cards and even on our billboards, we see this, wise men, and we should put women too, still seek him. And it's true. Those who are wise will seek the Lord. So that's what I want to talk about in the rest of our time together is how we seek God and why we should do so. You see, as Christians, I think sometimes we feel like, well, we've already found Jesus. You know, there was a, a moment when we heard the gospel. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we became a new creation. We are believers now. We, we found the Lord. And we, when we testify about our salvation, that's what we talk about sometimes in those terms. How we found Jesus. He saved us. And so sometimes I think we have this mindset, if we use the wise men as an illustration, we were the wise men, we found him, we met him, and now we're going back home. Okay, we're done now. It's all happened. But the reality is we as Christians need to continue to seek God. Not that he is here now and he goes over there somewhere and then over here and you've got to keep looking for him like it's hide and seek. I don't mean that. But we will often hide from God and we will run away from God and we will move from God. 
And if we do that, we need to get back to him. So we need to be continually seeking God. Now, when you think about God and seeking him, the first question we really need to answer is who is seeking whom? Does God seek us or do we seek him? The answer is yes. Both is true. I think it's important to understand this. If we look at some verses, we would get the impression that there's no hope unless God finds you and looks for you. Remember last week when I told you the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, this, his, the end of his story is this verse in Luke 19. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. It tells us that God is looking. That was Jesus' mission when he came to this earth. He was born in Bethlehem, but his mission was to go to find those who are lost and to save them. Notice in that verse, there's nothing about anyone else looking for God or looking for Jesus, the Son of Man. It's him going and finding. And in fact, if you look at Paul says in Romans, as he's quoting from the Old Testament, he says, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. That gives us the impression that, that God is seeking. When he finds us, we're the lucky ones. If he doesn't find us, then we're out of luck because no one's looking for him. What Paul is telling us, though, is he's trying to tell us how bad our situation is. Our situation is so bad that naturally we're not looking for God. You know, we're not born with, oh, goody, now I want to go find God. We're born as selfish people. So Paul is telling us how bad our situation is. But then he goes on in Romans to tell us the good news about what God has done for us and how he has saved us. And so you have to put these verses with other verses, like the book of Acts, where Paul is speaking to unbelievers. Listen to what he says to those in Athens when he preaches to them. He says, from one man, he refers to God, has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they may reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul tells them, look, God is managing the world, if you want to use that word. He's created the world and he's put people in places. He, there's the creation that people can see. Uh, God is near, he's around and he manages the world so that people will find him. I know some people expect God to do more. And I don't know what more they want. You know, God made the universe as a testimony to the fact that he exists. God created us with an inward desire for an eternity and for worship. That's built into each one of us. He's built into us a, a compass, a conscience that tells us right and wrong. These things lead us to God. He sent his son, Jesus, to die for us and has written down in a Bible that has been translated and transmitted for centuries. So we have God doing all of this and people still say, well, where is he? How can I see him? I think sometimes people want God to come like the angels did in the Old Testament, stand right before us and say, here I am, you know, believe in me. Or they, they want God to write something in the sky that says, you know, this is who I am or 
whatever. I mean, God could have done those things. He hasn't done those things, but he has certainly done enough and all that he needs to so that people know that he's here and that they can find him if they will look for him. And so Paul is telling us this. God is seeking us and looking for us, but we too have a part to play in desiring him and looking for him. If someone never looks for God, they won't find him. It's not because God's not there or God's not wanting them to come to him. It's because that person's not looking, doesn't want God. Just like those scribes in Jesus's day. If we look for him, we will find him. When we were saved, Paul reminds us in Ephesians, doesn't he, that we are saved by grace through faith. It's the grace of God that reaches out to us. That's God seeking. It's our faith in him. That's us seeking him. And that's true in salvation. It's true in our life. God's completely in control and we completely have free will to choose and to seek him. So both seek. God seeks us. We seek him. Hebrews eleven six 6 tells us this too. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Seek God with all of your being. I love this verse from David in Psalm 63. He says, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. Does that verse describe your desire to be close to God? Uh, David uses the, the metaphor of being thirsty in a dry land. Fortunately, I've never been in a desert with no water and no hope of any water or rescue. But I have been in my backyard in the summer when it's 100 degrees doing yard work and I have a sense of what David's talking about, and you do too, when there is that thirst because you are so hot, so tired, isn't that what your focus is on? It's just on getting some water to drink. When you're that thirsty, you're not thinking about even getting a shower or what you're doing that evening. You're not thinking about uh, tomorrow. You're not thinking about anything other than a drink of water. There's that desperation that laser focus. And that's what David's talking about. That's his relationship with God. He says, that's how I long for you, God. That's how I desire to be close to you. Just like if I were so thirsty, all I was focused on was water. But for so many of us, our Christian life isn't focused on getting close to God. We're so distracted by ourselves and everything else in this world. And we don't have that single desire to be close to God. David had it and we should have it as well. And also when we have that desire, we should seek God first. And then everything else in life will work out. You see, so many people in life chase after things. They chase after money or they chase after uh, the clothes they're going to wear, the food they're going to eat. They chase effort after uh, achievement. They chase after recognition and fame. They chase after all these things. And even worse, people will say, 
I don't have time for God. I don't have time for church or serving God because then I won't have time to chase these other things. And I need these things. And Jesus says the exact opposite is true. He says, if we seek him, his kingdom, we seek righteousness first, then all these other things will be provided. You know the verse very well, Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. First is seeking God. Then those other things you need in life, God will provide them. Don't get it backwards. Too many times even Christians will pursue the other things in life. And then when they have time for God, they'll fill God in with their spare time. And I'm always convicted of this. If we seriously think about it, I think many more of us would be convicted of how our, our drive, our, our passion in life is so much just like the rest of our culture. We value the same things. We seek after the same things. We want the same goals in life. Just as unbelievers do. Ours should be different. It's seeking God first, not all these other things. And then those things God will provide. We need to seek God before he has to get our attention. Now, parents, isn't it true that sometimes it's hard to get your kids' attention? Uh, sometimes at our house, it's around dinner time. That's when it's hard to get attention. Uh, I know some kids, all they got to hear is dinner and they're, they're right there at the table with, with the fork and knife. But, you know, maybe it's like this mom in this cartoon. Guys, are you upstairs? Owen, James, supper's ready. Do you have the door closed or what? This mom is screaming, as you can tell, at the top of her lungs, trying to get her kids' attention. Now, parents, I have a little bit of, uh, of advice this morning. If you really need to get your kids' attention, don't do the screaming and the yelling. Don't do the threatening. Don't do the bribery. I've got some reverse psychology for you, okay? If you really want your kids' attention, just go to the bathroom. They'll be there in an instant knocking on the door. Or make a phone call. If you're on the phone, they're right there. You know this. Just get on the couch for a moment to yourself, and your kid will be right there sitting next to you. Or, you know, take some wrapping. You know, when they hear that, crinkling of the candy bar or the potato chip bag when they know there's something there that's going to be yummy to eat aren't they right there asking for it so so see that's all you got to do when it's time for dinner just sit down on the couch and relax and they'll be right there interrupting your peaceful time in no time all right then you'll be then you can have dinner okay but but seriously god is a father we are his children and when he wants our attention he will get it he will not allow us to run away from him forever or hide from him forever, nor you would if you were a parent to your kids. You know, if you're a good parent, you don't let your kids run away and say, oh, well, they'll come back someday, maybe, you know, just let them go. Or if they are, are uh, misbehaving, their life is off track, you just don't say, oh, big, no big deal. No, you try to bring them back. And God does the same thing with us. But what we want to do is not get to the point where he has to get our attention. Notice what uh, is said in Psalm 78. When he killed some of them, the rest began to seek him. 
they repented and searched for God. Psalm 78 is a summary of Israel's history, and this almost sums it up right here in this one verse. And the book of Judges is another one example of what happened often in their history. The nation of Israel would be cruising along, but they'd be cruising along ignoring God and worshiping false gods. And then God would have to get their attention because they were running away from him. So they would, God would bring an enemy to oppress them. He would bring a famine. He'd bring a plague. He'd bring something so that they would pay attention. When they started to hurt and when they were desperate, then they would call out to God. Psalm 78, sometimes God even had to kill someone to get their attention. Then the rest said, oh, okay, well, listen now, God. And then they would repent and then they'd be close to God. They would seek God. They would find him. There would be a close relationship. But like so many of us, it lasted for a short time. When things, when the pressure was off, they went back to their old ways, worshiping false gods, running away from God. And when they did that, God had to get their attention again. He'd bring some other calamity. Then they'd wake up and then they would repent and they'd be close to God. Then they'd be comfortable again. Then they would turn away from him. In the book of Judges, it's just a vicious cycle that keeps going and going. God does want to get your attention, but he'd rather get it by you listening to his voice when he calls rather than having to get your attention with tragedy or calamity. So seek God before he has to get your attention. And don't wait until he has to take drastic measures for you to listen to him. If you seek God, you will find him. It's not hide and seek. You know, God's not trying to hide from us and we have to find him and it's difficult and it's hard and he hides in the little nooks and crannies of this universe. You know, that's not how it works. Uh, Moses says in Deuteronomy, but from there you will search for the Lord your God and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. In fact, Moses here is talking about really what Psalm 78 said. This is more prophetic. Moses is looking into the future and he says, there's going to be a time when you're going to turn away from God. But from there, you will seek God and you will find him. This is a wonderful promise. Those who are unbelievers, when they seek God, they will find him and they will be saved. Those of us who are Christians, when we get away from God, when our life is difficult because we have forgotten God, given up on God, gone away from God, stopped listening to God. If we seek him again, we will find him. So never think that God's too far away or that God's never going to be there for you. We may be away from God, but God is always there. You always will find him if you seek him. And finally, if you seek God, he will reward you. I mentioned Hebrews earlier. Let me read it to you again. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. If you seek God, he will save you. If you seek him after you're saved, he will give you a fulfilling, rewarding life. I didn't say an easy life. I didn't say a carefree life, but a life that is fulfilling, a life that is righteous because it will be lived with God. 
So it's worth seeking him. Not only will you find God, he will reward you. The wise men in Jesus' day sought the Lord and found him. And they were blessed for it. Be like them, seeking the Lord all the time, staying close to him, and you will be blessed for it. Don't follow the example of the scribes who knew all about the Messiah, who are super close to him geographically, but refused to search for him and find him. Follow the example of the wise men. This modern day proverb still is true. Wise men and women still seek him. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who wants to be found. You have done so much so that we would know that you exist and that you are there. So I pray, Lord, for any who are here this morning who have not put their faith in you, Jesus, that they would seek you and find you today in salvation. Lord, I pray for us as brothers and sisters. It is so easy, Lord, to remember our day of salvation and feel as though the journey and the seeking has ended and that we go on with our life. At times given thought to you, a lot of the time not focused on our desires and our purposes. So Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts so that would not be the case. I pray you would give us that desire that David had to know you desperately. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us sensitive to your spirit so that we are never so far away from you that you have to to do something drastic in our life to get our attention. I pray, Lord, that today we would leave this sanctuary seeking you, God. And I pray your blessing upon us as we do. And I pray this, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Let's stand together. And let's sing as we close. As we're closing today, I will be at the back to meet you if you want to pray or make anything, commitment to the Lord, sure. And um, as we sing, remember, this is a time to say yes to God. So let's sing and respond. I searched the world But it couldn't fill me A man's empty press And treasures that fade Never enough Then you came along And put me back together Here in your love Oh, there's nothing Better than you There's nothing Better than you Oh, there's nothing Nothing is better than you I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, my failures and blood.
together. Dear Lord, we are looking ahead to the great things that you are going to do in the new year, and we're thankful for all the things that you have already done. Thank you for bringing us to your house today. May we go out and, and spread the, the glory of your name to those around us. We love you, and we praise you. And it's in your precious name. Amen.